Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And we're officially back from a long overdue and much needed spring break with a brand new episode focused solely on the pandemic. Yeah, I'm surprised I... Okay, no, I'm not surprised that we didn't do this before because I actively was turning away from doing this because... Everything was COVID everywhere all the time. Not like that's changed, but now there's like added fuckery in it. And so I'm just like, okay, it's time. I think we should do this. Yeah, absolutely. And it was this time last spring where you did our first COVID episode. And I just want to say two years in the Hill Times is some time around that. Great job. Yeah, I think so. Um, so Erica, I, I was thinking about this, getting ready and doing all of our prep for this. And I kind of had this epiphany of how I felt about reading all of the information that we're going to be giving people and all the topics we're going to be talking about. And I don't know that I've ever had a complete lack of faith in all of Canada at once. Hmm. Mm. I see where you're okay. I totally see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I've, I've never felt Canada be so completely out of control. And like, it's scary and stressful. Okay. I think that that's a pretty poignant and pretty astute observation because it's true. The whole country is fucking up at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and at a critical juncture. At a critical juncture. Like for, and I just wonder how much of this is couched in the ideologies that we have um, consumed politically and, you know, really barfed up into the conservative party (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) okay no no no. um the ideologies that we have um been sold and perpetuated for like two generations so it's the idea of uh, sick leave being nothing more than vacation pay that people are just going to mm. take vacation with their sick leave. So let's take away their sick leave. Mm-hmm. You know, um, number two is the idea of public health and um, you know, Canada has been praised for its health system. And I just think, I think the, co- I think COVID honestly Everybody is telling on themselves. I really do think it's just exposed every crack and fissure in mm. our political, economic, and social frameworks that we we believed were the case, but really aren't. Mm-hmm. And I just think that COVID, the time of COVID, is just like it's pure truths, no chaser, right? Yeah. It's not 
anything, what we're seeing in, and we're going to talk a lot about the inequities. Um, but you, but you can't paper over all the things we normally can. Yes. You know. Yes. And the reactions of people who are restricted from doing exactly what they want when they want has caused this angst that has exposed what people really think. And in a way, I'm just like, wow, this is fascinating. But not only that, it also exposed how little expertise Mm. and good decision-making and leadership there actually is at the top. Mm -hmm. And I wrote in the Hill Times this week about how white men are fucking up and how their fuck-ups are costing lives. They really screwed the pooch Mm. in the sense that if you look at the vast majority and, you know, like when we talk to um, Robin Doolittle about, and that's why this is important, what she was doing, when we talk to her about the workplace and how, who's making the decisions in public institutions, Mm -hmm. because right now we're really talking about public institutions writ large and who heads it up, who is second in command, who is poised to take over, who's making the decisions, who's, in, who's providing input to those decisions, how seriously is their input being taken? I mean, we have a whole like bunch of white male premiers who were two years ago, three years ago, the quote unquote resistance, I will never stop. <laughs> With shout that out, Shout out McLean's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it aged like it did. That was, for example, that McLean's cover was a, I I feel like was a Paul Wells special and look Mm. how it turned out. Mm. Speaking of white men. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But the, the, and the ability to interpret what's going on to the ability to reflect is very much um, a narrow minded exercise Mm. you know i i I look at these pundits and i read some of what they and i'm like i'm going to add in prince the death of prince philip here to say that we're at like that marked the end of an era it's done it's over there's a finality in his death in the era that he especially was emblematic of mm-hmm. you know the top-down right. approach the hierarchy right. the class the race the immigration stat all of that and the toxic masculinity like all of that there's just this end of an era and i don't know if other people realize it or i'm just talking to myself here yeah and well I think... obviously i'm talking to you but you know <laughs> and i think that one, something that's really become evident to me is that, you know, a lot of these people who are in leadership positions are able to lead people because they can say nice things a lot of the time, but they don't necessarily have the skills to think of, you know, the whole system and how it works. Very few of them are actually systems thinkers. You know, they're very... Very, they see everything in silos or they're too into the 
I wouldn't even want to say that they're too into like specific details. No, they're not. I don't even know that that's true. Yeah. But they don't see how everything interacts and how you make a decision here. You make a trade-off in this other place. And that's a really, really key skill in times of crisis. Picking up from what you just said, is it that we have too many specialists and not enough generalists? I think that could be a symptom. I don't know if it's the problem. But um, I think it's people who don't want to, who are just want to be in, given the, the high level summary of something. They don't want to see how it interacts across everything. They want to be like, okay, what information do I need to know? What are my talking points? What are the things that I need to get out in the event that I'm asked after a press press conference or asked in a scrum or whatever like I need to know what my talking points are and they don't care to see how the trade-off what the trade-offs are which is I think probably emblematic of like the way our system works in terms of like the relationship between the political level and the media um but I think that's a different conversation yeah I would agree with that um we don't really have good implementers either. Mm. We tend to, Canada is a country that wants to research and analyze everything and actually do nothing. And I feel like the people who, like I would feel more comfortable with um, somebody who's had to manage like three kids and a dog and get them to places on time and stuff like that than somebody like Doug Ford because at least I know that they know that you know certain things interact with another and Mm. they have domino effects it's the domino effects that we're really living right now rather I mean that has kind of made this perfect circle um, of more transmission so, and we'll talk about that, you know, in this episode, but I, I just, we don't have systems thinkers. We don't have implementers. Yeah. We have and- people who can brand, but can't communicate, which is another, mm. another problem is the communications yeah. the, I don't even know. I'm like, can I go outside? Like, right. do I have a mask? Do I have to have a mask on outside? Do I not like... It's those decisions at the margin that they're not providing people where I'm at. And then they blame us afterwards for their poor communication. And don't get me wrong. There's some fools out there who are doing, I mean, I've been at a super spreader event recently, not by. Same. Okay. And I'm just like, are you for real right now? Are you for real? Mm. So, you know, I, individual response but individual responsibility can only go so far exactly yeah that's the point is that it's a very limiting thing Mm -hmm. and you know for those who are following the measures and following you know the guidelines and so on yes we are taking our part we're doing our part but there are also things that could that the government could put into place that would actually affect transmission rates on a macro scale. Individual efforts cannot be, I don't care what they tell you. I know we've been told this, but 
they cannot replace a systemic approach. They just can't. And I just see a lot of, I, I feel like that's part of the tension. Mm. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get into it, Erica. So, you know, as we know, we're 13 months into this pandemic. And as we've kind of alluded to, um, Canada's a bit of a dumpster fire right now. I never would have thought um, that we would be ever be in a worse off position than the U.S. And yet here we are. Um, and so as a nation, we are seeing our third wave and apparently like the fifth wave in Ontario. Um, <laughs> I mean, congrats to us, I guess. Uh, we are, we always like joking that Ontario thinks it's the center of the universe and well, I oh, guess Oh, it's so. the center. Well, I guess. <laughs> um, and basically we're a country in crisis. ICUs in Ontario are so full that the ICUs at CHEO, the children's hospital, is admitting adults for the first time. And ICUs in BC are the most stressed they've ever been. Um, in the last 45 days or so, Ontario has gone from the orange zone to the red zone to a circuit break lockdown to a stay at home and order and then to basically a police state. Uh, meanwhile, BC is seeing the highest daily case count it's seen all pandemic with roughly 50% of those cases being the highly contagious P1 Brazil variant. Yet Dr. Bonnie Henry still only strongly encouraging group gatherings, sorry, strongly discouraging group gatherings outside as though it was just a suggestion. We know how people take the suggestions. They say, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm gonna do what I want. Jason Kenny, I'm telling you, like that P1 Brazil variant raging in Alberta. Yep, yep. And so- But as, I think the UK variant is the, is the most prevalent one, if I'm not mistaken. I think here, yeah, yeah. Um, and as my friend Justin Ling pointed out in his very direct column in McLean's, he wrote, quote, understanding more about the virus has allowed more effective strategies to come into focus. Avoid indoor gatherings whenever possible. When they can't be avoided, have as few people as indoors as possible. Keep people apart from each other. Make sure they mask up and circulate the air with a good HEPA filter. Where possible, move people outside and actively encourage the outdoors as an alternative uh, those solutions are, of course, are easy to write and hard to implement. Warehouses, prisons, meat processing plants, greenhouses, and schools, even when those places follow the rules, most of the time, religious adherence to around the clock can be hard to maintain. So that's why mass randomized testing and aggressive contact tracing is necessary to catch outbreaks before the virus moves down the chain of contacts and creates new outbreaks. Shutting down those locations where the outbreaks occur is necessary. When things slip through the cracks and community spread begins, short-term circuit breaker lockdowns should be a last resort to get cases under control. Governments have begged us to stay home, except if you need to go work in an Amazon warehouse that has 600 cases. The Cargill chicken processing plant with 82 cases. The Saskatchewan Penitentiary with more than 260 cases, St. Michael's Ukrainian Catholic Parish, where congregants could gather without masks, has 10 cases, and Mega Gym, which the Quebec government permitted to reopen, has 400 cases linked to them, and so on. End of quote. And so, like we said, today we're talking about 
um, all things COVID, the enforcement and public health measures provinces have enacted and how they affect different communities, particularly migrant workers, essential workers, disabled people, and racialized communities. <sighs> yeah, man, stressful. All right, Erica, do we want to start with labor? What do we want to start with here? Yeah, I, I would like to say that, that Justin Ling pretty much, you know, was talking about that dual approach mm. of that individual responsibility. You do your part. It's, it's supposed to be, a, a, it's, it's part of the social contract that we're really, the, the social contract that honestly has been redacted for, for like a generation or two, two generations. Um, I really do think the breakdown of the social contract has a lot to do with this, with this, um, with the state we're in. And what he said basically is there's short-term measures that you take in as, and in the background, kind of like humming in the background, right, mm -hmm. is the capacity building measures, the system, their systemic measures, so that the two parts can work together to actually curtail the spread of this virus. Let's look at the US when they beefed up their, um, I think their vaccination is going swimmingly because they beefed up their capacity building measures. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even before uh, the America Rescue Plan, I think it was, it's called, even before that was passed, mm -hmm. you had, you know, some executive orders that really began to level the playing field and really, and really targeted uh, not people, not individuals, but those systemic, those areas in the systems which are lacking. And so I do think that that happened. They were able to build vac vaccination, uh, a whole vaccination plan and execution um, off, off a lot of those things. Um, I'm not going to get into who did what when. But the point is, is that what is impressive with the U.S. is that they were able to pivot. Mm, yeah. And that's what Canada cannot do. It doesn't do very well. Mm -hmm. It doesn't pivot. And it's not able to adjust to new information. Yeah. And that's also part of the problem because you need to know, you need to have people with wisdom who can actually say, you know what, I see that we see that racialized workers or essential workers or whoever are, you know, this community spread is happening. How do we get to them mm -hmm. earlier? <clears throat> and in terms of vaccination and, you know, all of the supports, mm -hmm. it's only now they're talking about pop-up clinics. And I'm mm -hmm. like, does nobody look at any other jurisdiction in the world like literally, this is a pandemic that everybody on the globe has been going through. Some things have worked, some things haven't, but you have a whole range of 13 months of fucking data mm -hmm. to see what works and what doesn't and where you may be lacking. And it seems like none of that assessment has been done. Yeah. Or at least acted on. Yeah. And I think that it seems... And I think this is a great segue into a discussion about the way the vaccine has been distributed, period. Um, 
you know, today the federal government announced that it's really up to the provinces to determine age eligibility and that for the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's been approved by Health Canada for ages 18 and over. And, you know, vaccine hunters on Twitter in Canada has, in Ontario, was showing so many appointments available in Ottawa for um, the over 55 age group. And at this point, like start just lowering the age, start just making it like it's more important to vaccinate the entire population than to make sure that we're following the fucking rules. Thank you. And I think it's just like people keep waiting one to follow the rules and two asking for permission be like, Oh, I don't know if we can do this yet. Just fucking do it. There's no sense of urgency. That's because, you know, the rules are more important than the outcome that the rules are trying to achieve. Yeah. And so I totally agree with you, by the way. I'm just like, then why aren't we lowering the age? Second of all, who said vaccinating by age was a good idea in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I mean, in theory, it was like the highest risk for the elderly, which fine. But 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 that went to the wayside like a while ago yeah yeah it should have it should be highest risk people so therefore the the elderly then uh essential workers frontline workers thank you whatever exactly teachers yeah yeah people with underlying health considerations you're right um those who are immunocompromised etc etc and that kind of immunocompromise assume like i would assume that those people have a, some sort of steady doctor, whether yeah. it's uh, your steady walking clinic or whatever. Yeah. Um, distributed through them. Yeah. For the immune, for that set of people, you know. Absolutely. Like I don't understand. I seriously, Aaron, I don't get it. I don't understand the problems. I, I'm just like. I get it, but I don't. Like, I get why they started off with 80 and above. Okay, mm-hmm. though, what you were targeting were vulnerable people. But after that, age should have been, we should be targeting vulnerable people first. Oh, 100%. Um, and like you said, now they're only going to these, with mobile clinics, into these quote-unquote hotspots where COVID numbers are like out of control. Um, and obviously this has been mismanaged. Um, and yet, you know, the CBC looked into the data and real and found out that, um, some neighborhoods that have been far less affected by the pandemic than others who are designated as hotspots are actually receiving, um, this hotspot designation, despite the data, not backing it up. So five postal codes declared as hotspots have rates of COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths that are actually below the provincial average. And that's according to data from the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, which is an Ontario-based research institute. And so this designation of hotspots um, by, let me just point out and clarify, the Ontario government Um, gives people in these areas the higher priority. Um, Despite the lower than average pandemic burden, 
And so in the five postal codes that have been given this um, designation of being a hotspot, only 175,000 people live in them. And uh, four of those writings, weirdly, are progressive conservative writings. Hmm. Weird. Um, and the CBC also- That's evil on a certain level. Like that is banal evil. Oh, yeah. And, and the CBC's review of the data have identified seven postal code zones that have felt a greater impact from, the, from COVID as measured by the official criteria set out by the province, but aren't actually classified as hotspots yet. And those are weird, weirdly all uh, writings held by opposition parties. What in the GOP is happening to this country? Okay. What are we doing? How is that okay? I know. Like, I, I get, I get that the politics are important, but also, you know what, you know what people will like more and, you know, not one, not dying, um, two, not getting sick. Like, I don't, you know, and so there was, I think, a poll in the last few weeks where um, the PC government, Ontario, was would still get a majority if an election was held today, which I don't know what the fuck people Mother. are paying attention to. But um, now, you know what's going to get people to vote for you? Ending the pandemic. You know what's yeah. going to end the pandemic? Getting shots in arms where the virus is out of control. Yeah, and, you know, this this blame the federal government approach, I'm kind of like, that's so Jason Kenney, first of all. And... I, I'm sorry to say, it's not their fault. I actually don't think the Fed, it's the Fed's fault. What they're able to procure at which time is a function of these COVID vaccines being the most valuable product on Earth. Mm. right well the thing that's exactly it and like the people who live in these ridings are racialized they're poor possibly unhoused they're people who live in multi-generational households um and they can't isolate they don't have the space they don't have the the ability and the privilege and the luxury to do those things um, and like more than 1.6 million people in Canada are migrants, refugees, or undocumented, which is one in every 23 people, which is an astounding statistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes from the Migrant Rights Network. And, who, and they also said that across the country, they're seeing people struggle with accessing the vaccine. Um, among the list of the organization's demands um, are that the vaccine must be free, must not require a health card or the collection of any identification or address or information about immigration status. Agreed. Absolutely. It's, I don't think people realize that we have to vaccinate people globally. This is a global effort. It, mm-hmm. You can't have one place that's vaccinated, it's shut their borders and that's it. It's not, it's not going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just... 
I mean, it wasn't that long for the UK variant to migrate here. It wasn't that long for the Brazil variant to migrate here. And so, you know, I really do think that if we don't vaccinate everybody, then we the the numbers are going to skyrocket. I don't think anybody should pay for the vaccine. Mm-mm. I don't think anybody should be required to provide I agree to provide ID for this vaccine. Um, I do think there should be a mechanism of record keeping for first and second shots. Sure. Only. Um, But I don't think that money should be spared Mm -hmm. to not to vaccinate certain types of people. They're here. Therefore, they need to be vaccinated. This, this is not this is not the time to be to be pinching pennies. No, and you know, which is another one of my price versus value is another one of my issues with the way things work in this country. Because mm-hmm. Canada is a cheap nation. It's a bunch of like cheapsters, like it like cheap people. Mm-hmm. It really is. It they don't people in Canada don't want to spend money on like social services that could have mitigated this pandemic or the effects of this pandemic yeah i saw a statistic the other day um that i forget if it was in ontario or canada i think it was canada where people or canadians supported um better infrastructure highways transit and all of these things but didn't want to pay higher taxes like where the fuck do you think it comes from did it just like appear out of thin air? No, you have to have, like, they have to bring money in in order to budget it and spend it. I like to see higher corporate taxes in this country, to be honest. Oh, I, yes. Okay. They've gotten a free ride for too long. Okay. Maybe not free, but free enough. Yeah. And they are part, a big part of the problem in terms Absolutely. of of the spread, the transmission. I also want to point out that um, mutation occurs during transmission. And the more this virus is transmitted, so the higher the transmission rate, the more likely you're going to get more robust second and third generation variants. Mm -hmm. And so mitigating the transmission is not just about stopping to spread the disease. It's stopping to... It's reducing the um, probability of, of, of deadlier variants and, or, or more transmutable vir- variants. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I just think that this pandemic is really an indictment on, our, on how we live and how we're structured and the approach that we take. <laughs> in terms of problem solving. Also, this is not a, ca- a country that solves problems. I'm just saying. Yeah. We don't have, we don't, we don't value problem solvers. And. Uh, I would say, I don't disagree with that statement. I would say we lack courage and we. Oh, right, right, We're right. afraid of big, bold action. Okay. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. So yes, which results in yes getting things exactly done. exactly. We don't get things done. I'm sorry, we just yeah. don't. Not as a no. So, um, Erica, if you uh, wanted to go get a vaccine, do you know how you do it? 
no. (laughs) (laughs) So my my parents who are in BC and have received their first vaccine, um, they have a very clear rollout in BC where you sign up online based on eligibility requirements. So actually, as of the end of this coming week, everyone aged 18 and older in BC will have signed up uh, to be notified when they are eligible. So it's a two-step process. You have to sign up, and then once you are eligible, you will receive a text or an email to be like, you can get your sign up for your vaccine now. Pick a day. Great. Easy. I have no fucking clue. My parents ask me regularly, when are you getting your vaccine? I'm like, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. And part of that is that, you know, the the province not communicating it properly. You know, we, we're using age, but we're also using uh, teachers can maybe get it in some places. Um, maybe some essential workers, healthcare workers can get it. Uh, but now we're at 55 and over in most places, but in some places it's 50 and over. But then if you live in a hot spot, there are some places in Toronto where it's 18 and over. So I, 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 I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. And my mom keeps saying, well, how, how can you not know? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I think, um, and like you, know, you and I live on the internet. I know. I know. <laughs> Imagine being someone who doesn't live on the internet. You know? I'm starting to think um, there's like a whisper network in like old peopleville. <laughs> and like, that's how they know. No, they have all their kids who are our age doing it for them. That's true, too. Which is just wild to me. Anyway, you know, once maybe you can maybe, if you're eventually eligible to uh, get a vaccine, you should do that. Um, But Erica, did you know in March, uh, there was a legal challenge filed against the Ontario government under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that claimed that the government was leaving behind the most vulnerable vulnerable people from the vaccine rollout, specifically homebound seniors, those with disabilities, and people who live in the hardest hit areas. Uh, the filing calls for the Ministry of Health to direct public health units to make equity central to their vaccination plans and then provide the resources to do it. It notes that the province's online vaccine booking system, huh, Kelsapreze is not accessible for people who are blind, huh, and those who are not digitally literate or lack computer access. No fucking kidding. People need phones. Internet is a public good. Okay. Listen, I know. People need phones to be able to... Uh, to be able to be on hold for a long time if they want to use the call center. The website, again, surprise, only available in English and French, uh, while some public health units are also including mobile or neighborhood clinics. These clinics are not functioning at a level with which provide equal access if they exist at all. 
Why would you go into a community that speaks Urdu and only provide English and French? The fuck? It, it, how are you in? Yeah, go ahead. It should be, and I'm sure it actually probably is, provincial government policy to make sure that their websites are accessible to those with visual disabilities. Didn't Ontario pass like the Disabilities Act recently, like in the last like three or four years that called for that? I don't know, but I have written things for websites and had to write text explanations for like pictures, which is extremely hard to do. So anyone who does yeah. that, great job, because it's very hard to do. Um, but it's a requirement. Um, let's move on to labor policies. So last Friday, Doug Ford announced a whole bunch of funding restrictions for the existing stay-at-home order. What a uh, dick. <laughs> none of which weirdly directly affected those who work in, you know, warehouses, meat processing plants, etc. All of the things Justin Ling referred to in his column. Um, and at present in Ontario, there are 24 COVID outbreaks in food processing plants. Yet Ford and the progressive conservative government are focusing their efforts on reducing outdoor gatherings in parks and closing non-essential retail at which there have been almost no cases. One of the problems fueling, the, fueling COVID transmission is a lack of legislated paid sick days for the numerous temporary workers at these sorts of facilities. So that means they either stay at home without pay or go to work sick, hoping that they don't have the coronavirus and infecting others. Um, as someone who was exposed to a, an asymptomatic person recently, let me tell you, real mind fuck. Um, Ontario's science advisory table urged the province to shut down all non-essential work and ensure adequate paid sick leave for those in essential sectors. While non-essential construction will temporarily shutter under these new orders, manufacturing, manufacturing and warehousing, where all of the existing data shows most workplace outbreaks are taking place, and where many workers do not have paid sick days, will continue with no restrictions. Mm. So paid sick leave, and I, you know, this has been on, uh, let's start there, because that's been on the minds of mm -hmm. everybody and the tongues of everybody for a long time, mm. meaning six months. Um, so one of the problems that's fueling this COVID-19 transmission is a lack of legislative paid sick leave uh, for numerous temporary precarious, when we say precarious, I mean, people who don't have long-term stable employment with benefits, let's say. Um, so we're talking gig workers, temporary workers at the facility, migrant workers we mentioned, um, contract workers are another set that's growing that we don't particularly um, talk about a lot, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it means that these people either stay at home or go without pay or go to work sick, hoping they don't 
have just basically crossing their fingers um and to go a day without pay is a huge it could it, it could mean a light bill it could mean a phone bill mm-hmm. um it could mean a lot of other things so ontario science advisory table urged the province to shut down all non-essential work as you just mentioned and ensure adequate paid sick leave for those in essential sectors. Um, There apparently is a difference between sick days and paid sick leave. Um, So paid sick days Mm -hmm. are often used to refer to the individual days a worker can take off work in an emergency or short-term situation paid sick leave is Mm. often used to refer to time off over a longer period of time right so but not quite short-term disability but not quite short-term disability exactly it's it's that gap between the two yes yes so across canada uh paid sick days have largely been left to the responsibility of the employer and or union collective agreements to provide. Now, as we know, the prevalence of unions are concentrated in certain areas, um, especially federal areas, which are um, have their own sort of benefit structure, but also have uh, their own, um, you know, paid like legislation so federal legislation um is about relegating federally controlled areas right so there's only so much there are gaps and there's only so much um federal paid sick leave at or and or sick days can cover certain industries unions cover other industries and the rest is just, you know, on the wing and a prayer and the largesse and goodness of an employer, which we know how that turns out. Um, so workers in Canada, so there's a patchwork system of leaves for illnesses. Most workers fall under provincial and territorial employment standards, which sets out minimum mandatory job protective leaves that employers much must provide, as I said before, workers in federal regulated industries, such as airlines, banks, and telecommunications are governed by legislation at the federal level. If you work at, say, um, uh, especially in an industry that's been hardest hit by COVID. So your entertainment industries, your hospitality industries that um, employ a lot of single mothers, women, people of color, um, and, uh, you know, younger people too, are, are where the federal policies would not, they wouldn't be affected by those policies. Right. And that there has to be like provincial, a provincial sort of top up, or maybe the federal one is a top up. But the point is, is that there's a jurisdictional issue here Mm. and um, there's only so much the feds could do, which is why this is, this falls under provincial jurisdiction. So if you say uh, there is employment insurance, 
Federally, yes. There is employment insurance that offers 15 weeks of sick benefits for workers who qualify, but there are significant gaps in coverage and delays in processing payments. So EI is not designed to cover short-term illness or injury, um, even if you have to, so if you have to self-isolate for COVID, employment insurance is just not going to cover it. And it only provides workers with 55% of their previous wage, leaving lower wage workers, especially financially insecure. According to StatsCan, in 2019, less than 40% of illness or disability leave was paid. Um, So I think that, so apparently Ontario briefly had two emergency paid sick leave days and 10 job protected emergency days, but the PC government replaced them with three unpaid days for personal illness. Mm. Um, So knowing this, the NDP actually deserves some credit because last year in fall, in early fall, they kind of forced the liberals to adopt a more flexible and inclusive uh, sickness benefit. So the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit provides $450 after taxes per week for up to two weeks. Provincially mandated paid sick leave is a superior policy because the missed pay is applied automatically to a worker's paycheck where the CRSB is paid out similar to employment insurance Make meaning workers must apply and are paid by the government days or weeks after foregoing income. Um, so Employment Minister Carlo Qualtro's office said that people applying for CRSB can expect to receive a benefit in three to five business days if they have set up direct deposit with CRA. Now, this is where I get pissed off because who has a CRA direct deposit account set up? Because let me tell you, it's not the people. It's not those same essential workers. I can tell you that. Who has the sort of experience to move through these systems uh-huh. in order to set some, to know that they have to set something like that up? Exactly. Who? Well, yeah, exactly. It's, these are the people who like, like me, basically. Yeah. Um, and like I file my taxes online and once you file online, they encourage you to sign up for direct deposit or like vice versa. But like, they're like part of like a symbiotic relationship. Yes. So we go back to the online and digital, um, and the digital delivery of a lot of these programs, I think has to be looked at because I could tell you that you're missing swaths of this country mm-hmm. and it's the people who have like that is think, liter- literal facts that's literal facts the rural people people on reserve um what uh, else people you, multi-generational yeah, you know, but, households but you know why people on reserve it's because people who have first nation status or indigenous status don't need to file taxes mm, yeah so they don't have a direct deposit account with the CRA. And that is racism. 
The intent doesn't matter. It's the outcome. So this disproportionately affects Indigenous people on reserve. Okay. So, um, so that is my quibble uh, with with the with the CRSB. I think that um, this is a common theme for when the governments roll out these projects because uh, they depend so much on this infrastructure, this social and economic infrastructure that is inaccessible to the same people that we're talking about, period. Okay, an estimated 58% of Canadian workers don't have access to paid sick leave through their employers, according to a report by the Decent Work and Health Network. Uh, That number rises to 70% among people making less than $25,000 a year. So I I think we have to look at the opportunity cost of missing a day of work. Mm -hmm. The higher up the income scale you go, it's not as big of a hit Mm -hmm. as it is for people who have to spend every penny that they make. So, you know, I mean... This whole sick leave idea, the point is, is that um, Doug Ford is full of crap when he says the feds are fine doing it. Uh, What I find with Doug Ford is that he wants to um, lay all the costs at the feet of the feds Mm. and then turn around and criticize them for spending the money. I find that a lot with the provinces that you know the 8.7 billion that especially went to ontario for you know relief for essential workers for this kind of sick leave for capacity building hasn't been spent properly and at the end of the fiscal year what happens to that money it goes down to paying the debt Mm -hmm. like there's a strategy here And what sickens me is that we are at a point in Canadian, um, in the Canadian epoch, I guess, that paying off the debt is now more important than the lives that could have been saved by spending the money. And when I talk about Canada and its identity and what it thinks about himself that's one of the things I'm talking about that this there's this ideology that we must pay down debt no matter what and it doesn't matter if it costs lives which is funny because if you think about in terms of a cost benefit analysis like the trade-offs are crazy Um, but also it's interesting for Canada to still maintain that view well, that view in the United States has kind of gone out the window. It's definitely crumbling. And first of all, I said this, I will continue to say this, that Joe Biden makes, you know, Justin Trudeau look like Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> and the reason I keep saying that is because the other thing, too, is that Joe Biden knows, I feel like he knows which side his, his voting bread is buttered. And he understands that there's certain types of people who put him into office. The other thing, too, is let's not pretend that this could not have happened, that that kind of viewpoint couldn't have been shattered without 
without Bernie and without the squad, yeah. right? And without, you know, other people like Jai Paul, um, Representative Jai Paul and, and others like her, Katie Porter, et cetera, who have pushed hard against that narrative. The case for government has been made. The case for a well-functioning government has been made. And it's, it's, it's incredible to me that the U.S., of all the things the U.S. could kick our asses out of, mm-hmm. especially where they were a year ago or even eight months ago, can actually transform into a well-functioning machine mm-hmm. that is able to deliver vaccines. What did I, what, what was on CNN? Like 50% of Americans, of the entire population, Aaron, has gotten at least one, one dose. I know. Incredible. Incredible. I'm just like, what? I know. It's unreal. And what is it? 25% are fully vaccinated of, of the entire U.S. population. Okay. I am I so tired of seeing all of my American friends say that they're fully vaccinated. I'm like, I can't, I need to like mute you or block you or unfollow you because this is just bad for my mental health and I know it's not your fault. <laughs> no, it's it. Like this is this should be a moment where Canada really wonders what why it's even here. Our population is less than that of California. Like the yeah, entire, our, now, our entire country less than the state of California. Yeah. Now people are going to be like, but we have a landmass, and I'm like, oh, so you mean there's there isn't adequate infrastructure to these points that you want to get to? Because that's basically what you're telling me. If you're if you're saying that it's Canada's so spread out and sparsely populated, true. Mm-hmm. But that's where roads and shit come in. Mm-hmm. You know, and there are but lots of planes even- that can be donated by friggin' Air Canada and WestJet. Okay. They got something they need something to do. They need something to do, literally. Okay. They have grounded planes. Why can't we repurpose those? Why are we giving industry that's, that's even, all of the breaks and none of the response? But that's not even the art. Like, if they want to say that that's a f- valid argument, sure, yes, those are true facts. But the problem is, we can't even vaccinate the people in the goddamn cities. Well, <laughs> so let's look at areas where Canada is densely populated along the border. Along, ah. Weird. Along the border. Isn't that interesting? Weird. So basically what we're it's saying. Like, I think it's like 80% of our population. If yeah, higher. it's along the border. Yeah. And probably about 60% of it is here. 50. 40? You know, Ontario, Quebec, yeah. That corridor. The St. Yeah. Lawrence corridor is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't see the problem. I mean, obviously the problem is partially, mostly personnel. Because, like, Rick Hillier is a friggin' disaster. I mean, the yeah. man is, like, it was just a joke. The man is a joke. Mm-hmm. A joke. And I, I don't understand what is happening. I, I, I don't get it. All I see is one big clusterfuck. Mm-hmm. That's all I see. All right, Erica. So, you know, these disproportionate impacts are also being seen among racialized and indigenous communities. You know, we talked about 
the CRA thing for indigenous peoples. Um, but these disproportionate impacts reach further than that. And that's not due to biological differences between these groups or populations. Rather, they reflect existing health inequities that are strongly influenced by a specific set of social and economic factors and kind of the things we value as a society, you know, things like income, education, employment, and housing that shape an individual's place in society. And these factors are commonly referred to as the social determinants of health. Um, you can look them up on the Public Health Agency of Canada's website. There are, I think, 12 of them. Um, and so for certain groups, such as Indigenous peoples, racialized communities, and the LGBTQ2 plus um, communities, experience of discrimination, racism, and historical trauma are so important to um, their well-being and health. And so members of racialized communities are more likely to experience inequitable living and working conditions that make them more susceptible to COVID, such as lower incomes, precarious employment, um, overcrowded housing, and limited access to housing and social services. Many faced increased sorry, many face increased risks of exposure to COVID due to their employment in frontline essential occupations uh, with frequent contact with other people and a limit, limited ability to work from home. You know, these are the people who are working in the Amazon warehouses, who are working on farms in food processing centers. Um, for example, uh, many long-term care providers uh, in Canada are, you know, racialized women are basically working there. Uh, racialized employees also make up a large component of workers in, um, like I said, the agriculture system. Uh, that's huge in BC, huge in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of cases in those areas. And so yeah. working conditions in these facilities are coupled with higher risk living conditions at home. And then like we talked about really on at the early onset of this podcast, those are the places where the hot spots are happening. And if in Ontario, that's in Peel and Toronto. And that's been the case the whole time. The numbers, the daily um, reporting of case numbers, Toronto and Peel, always so much higher than the rest of the province. Yeah. And we, like, if you want to take an example, um, Let's go to the Cargill meatpacking plant in High River, Alberta. So at least 950 staff at the Cargill meatpacking plant, nearly half of its workforce, tested positive for COVID by May last year in what remains the largest workplace outbreak in Canada. As part of the national supply, food supply chain, slaughterhouses and meat processing facilities were deemed essential by governments and Cargill stayed open as the pandemic worsened. It continued operating until April 12th of last year when it was shut down for two weeks because of surging outbreak among its staff. Much of Cargill's staff, the plant that employs roughly 2,000 workers, is made up of members of the Filipino community. Employees estimated around 60% to 80% of the workforce is Filipino. Um, Ariana Quesada, 16, 
filed a formal complaint asking police to investigate potential criminal negligence in the death of her father who died from that outbreak. The RCMP confirmed it has now opened an investigation, and this probe is the first known instance in Canada of police investigating a workplace-related COVID-19 death. Cargill is also facing a proposed class action lawsuit on behalf of individuals who had close contact with Cargill employees. They allege the company operated without adequate safeguards despite public warning. So, I mean, that is what is really facing racialized and migrant communities, um, immigrant communities, uh, new Canadians, et cetera who are the ones who are often left out of the solutions. So Black people in particular are twice as likely to develop a case of the virus compared to white white people. As well, people of Asian ethnicity are 1.5 times more likely to contract the virus. These are crazy statistics. Crazy. Guidance from Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization recommended that adults from racialized communities disproportionately affected by COVID should be prioritized for shots in the second stage of the vaccination campaign. The advice would also see all essential workers who can't do their jobs from home moved into the second stage. Instead of, instead of focusing on, say, health workers with lower risk jobs. 79% of hospitalizations are of racialized persons. Mm-hmm. Torontonians of African and Caribbean descent currently experience the highest COVID rates in the city, comprising of 26% of the total cases, despite being only about 9 or 10% of the population in Toronto. Jesus. Yeah. Black and other racialized population vanished from the online list of those eligible to get a COVID vaccine in phase two of Ontario's rollout on Tuesday. Just vanished. I also want to say that South Asian communities in, um, there's a lot of Alberta talk for obvious reasons here, (laughs) Um, in Northeastern Calgary um, and areas of Edmonton, I think South Edmonton, et cetera, are also um, seeing the same types of statistics. Mm. Um, And those South Asian communities are also very, very high in terms of risk. Um, Indian communities and Indo-Caribbean communities are particularly hard hit too. So just want to put that out there just in case, you know, I don't want to misrepresent or miss a, a, a very affected group um but yeah it's it's a nightmare it's a nightmare for racialized communities uh who have those and there are different comorbidities that are underlying that have an effect on um how covid affects them so due to say racism in the healthcare system Mm -hmm. which doesn't give as much care to say those suffering from sickle cell anemia, for example, isn't, you know, mm-hmm. which is a quote unquote black disease. Yep. Um, that's a comorbidity. So, I mean, the social determinants of health are so important. Um, for example, let, like it, it, housing, mm-hmm. like 
housing is was a crisis beforehand Mm -hmm. i don't know what it is now it is absolute the price of housing is skyrocketing you're gonna have more people moving in with each other to save costs um the you know part of the reason you have these populations that are experiencing the rates is because we are in a housing crisis Mm -hmm. and i i want to see more of that written about because i'd like to know the intricacies of that Mm -hmm. but um you know housing internet healthcare capacity um how the lack of family doctors and that first point of contact with the medical system all of these things are 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 subjecting racialized people to a second tier form of healthcare in normal times and it's just exacerbated by covid yeah we've we talked a lot about um how the healthcare system treats black women specifically and we talked about it specifically with regard to serena williams and you know her her pregnancy um i mean talking about like the unhoused population i think it's finally good that municipalities have taken it upon themselves and done the right thing to vaccinate that group of people um because they are such high at such high risk because of the way they have to live in shelters but it's it's crazy to me to think that it took so much prodding by activist communities um, to to get them to do the right thing. You know, it's it's really just infuriating the way that things like um, black and racialized groups being removed from phase two of Ontario's rollout. Um, And, you know, it was just announced that Ontario will be lowering its eligibility for a vaccine to 40, which is great, but that wasn't part of the phase two rollout where I would have been eligible or should be eligible in phase two because of underlying health conditions. But don't worry, we're lowering the age for people to something that I still don't qualify for, but I would have been eligible otherwise like just open up the existing eligibility to the people you've already already said like I don't what's hard about this I don't I don't understand the difficulty either like it's like literally like I don't understand give it give it to teachers (laughs) yeah like why I I don't understand I really don't understand I mean I, I I I, I really don't get it. Let, and let's be honest, let's 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 not pretend that the, also the business closures that mm-hmm. are happening, um, mm-hmm. which disproportionately impact smaller businesses yep. and family run businesses, yep. right, which are um, very much correlated with, again, um, like immigrant proprietors and mm-hmm you know like those kinds of we're we're talking about these issues as though they're separate but they're all so interrelated yeah like um you know the paid sick days like we already talked about affects racialized communities it affects small businesses it affects those who are working the service industry because they're only probably making if you're in the kitchen 25 to 30 thousand dollars um and a year because you don't usually get an hourly wage 
you usually, if you're full time, you get a daily rate. Mm-hmm. And because oh. you, you don't, you work a full day, but then you work your prep also, you don't get paid for the prep. So you get, so you work 10 to 12 hours, but you make $200 a day. That becomes less than minimum wage. Um, and so if you don't work, you don't get paid. Right. But you might not also get sick days. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big issue. Um, but in terms of like the, the whole like racialized community thing, did you see the tweet this week that was going viral about an ICU nurse who was saying that, and I think it was in Canada, that she's been working in the ICU for the past like however many months and everyone that she's seen in critical condition has not been white. The white proverb, which is, it's not about race. <laughs> is um as soon as i hear that leave somebody's lips i'm walking the other way like i i just i i do not engage anymore because like the this the you you know it's so funny they wanted evidence of racism and when there's evidence they're like why is everything about race and you're just like because it is i am deceased (laughs) it is though so erica something that hasn't been talked about tons is people with disabilities and adults with developmental disabilities are four to six times more likely to die from COVID than other individuals. Canadians who reside in these group in these group homes for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities face many of the same risks as elders in long-term care homes. And You know, I'm so glad we're talking about this because there was so much focus on long-term care facilities and the general mismanagement of that crisis across the country. But there, I, I have seen almost no conversation about um, these kind of uh, facilities for people with developmental disabilities. Yeah, and the the they are people who are more likely to either who who are more likely to live in group homes Mm -hmm. right so again we have a space situation there Mm -hmm. um they rely more on what i found interesting is how important the government's communication is for them um if you have you may need to hear things like 50 times or something Mm -hmm. like that you may Need, but that consistent communication for people with um, developmental disabilities is so important. The routine of doing things is mm. so important. So when you have this approach that is um, that is, you know, so that changes, it's capricious in a way. Mm-hmm. It just changes all the time. Um, it confuses people. It confuses me. Yeah. And we are extremely online. Extremely you know, online. We, we have, have no no cognitive disabilities. disabilities. Exactly. So, you know, they are also people who require um, more holistic approach to healthcare. Yes. So it's not just about treating the illness or the disability. It really is, and when I say illness, I'm, uh, you know, 
let's let's expand it to people with epilepsy or something like that right um learning to walk through life Mm. and doing simple tasks Mm -hmm. and you know there's you know everything from occupational health to home care that helps out physically but also learning to um I don't know, buy groceries or something mm-hmm. like that. Imagine how much more difficult it is. Mm-hmm. The farm boy, which reminds me. So I went back to the farm boy on Metcalf Road. Uh-huh. And this is a very Ottawa specific thing, I'm going to say. Um, and what they do is as soon as you can't leave the store with the cart. Okay. And they it, they have some magnetic something that prevents you from rolling up the. And I said to them, I was like, this is very bad for people with disabilities. Mm. How are they supposed to, how are they supposed to like, just do something simple as take their groceries out right. to wherever they are? Mm-hmm. You know, that to me is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And if it's just supposed to be like you grab a, a certain amount of things and you go, then why is it so big? Like, yeah. Obviously, it's meant to do heavy duty shopping. Yeah. So while it's an irritant for us, I can only imagine what it's like to have all those barriers all the time. And this is just yet another one in Ottawa, of all places. Yeah. I mean, that should never have been allowed. But again, like, so, you know, we go back to housing and we go back to infrastructure and we like healthcare infrastructure. And again, uh, you know, long housing wait lists have Mm -hmm. left people with autism too, living in unsuitable occupations. Um, Frontline care, I could only imagine has been reduced because of this COVID. Um, So they're overrepresented also in emergency shelters where Mm. physical distancing is not available or not possible. Um, So yeah. Yeah. Comorbidities. Yeah. And and like all of it. And like data in the U S shows that fatality rates for people in this population with intellectual or developmental disabilities is as high as 16%, which is over two and a half times higher than the general population. That's crazy. Like, why are we not talking about this? <sighs> and like the, the COVID related deaths with um, developed people with de- developmental disabilities. So that the greatest proportion of deaths are among middle-aged adults Whereas, yeah. uh, which is in contrast to higher risk of mortality for older adults in the general population. Yeah. Like, man. Yeah. So they even, they even die younger from yeah. COVID or they are infected in, yeah. Or more likely to experience severe side effects post COVID. Yes. That's the other thing. And of course there are comorbid- comorbidities, uh, epilepsy, mental illness, dementia, uh, in, incontinence, skin conditions, constipation, and sensory impairments. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah. Imagine like ending up with long COVID and having like a developmental disability. Like, 
Jeez. So that's the other thing about COVID. I'm glad you brought this up. <laughs> COVID, um, that the long tail sufferers. So the people who, quote unquote, their cases are shown as resolved, mm-hmm. but they still have lingering effects from the disease. So, or from the virus. Um, loss of memory, I think, is one, or fu- a fuzzy head. Mm-hmm. Uh, fuzzy memory. It's fuzzy, it's brain fog. Co- yeah, brain fog. Ha- hazy cognition. Let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw hair loss. I saw all sorts of things. It's extreme fatigue. A friend of mine has yeah. it. Does oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah, she got COVID like right at last March and is still. It's we'll still- get like fevers and yeah. Oh crazy. Brain fog. Like her parents leave her notes on like when they send her like care packages oh no so yeah that's yet that's yet something else that's going to upend our healthcare system our healthcare system is not going to be the same no i mean i think the good thing so far is that the vaccine has been shown to reduce the effects of long covid in people who have it but i mean it's a matter of being able to fucking figure out when you can get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you have brain fog, good luck. Yeah, basically. Basically. So, I mean, the, the, like, the population itself, it really is, I, I just don't think that we're taking the long-term effects seriously. And which is why I hate when Aaron O'Toole goes to his oh well we just want to get our life back to normal i'm like it ain't gonna happen Mm. there's pre-covid and then there's covid and that's it Mm -hmm. since apparently now pfizer's saying we're gonna have to have booster shots after being fully vaccinated in six to 12 months man i was i i mean we'll be well i think um, Dr. Fauci is saying that we should have a better idea of that come fall. But I mean, mm. I don't know that it's necessarily much different than like a flu shot, which if you just think of it that way instead of a booster. But I, I guess it comes down then down to not everyone gets the flu shot. So how do we track and like roll out ma- a huge mass vaccination program every year? A lot of questions. I have a lot of questions. And I don't think there are answers yet. And uh, I just hope someone's thinking about them. Yeah. Yeah. I I just hope this doesn't get, like, politically buried. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we've all been vaccinated. Everything's fine. And what I find is that, you know, what is the most dangerous thing about Canada's approach is that we are trying to out-vaccinate the variants, and I think that's Doug Ford's and Jason Kenney's and all of them's whole strategy is, oh, oh, let's just get enough people vaccinated. We'll get herd immunity and everything will be fine. And I'm just like, OK, first of all, do you know how many people you have to vaccinate for herd immunity? 70 percent of the population, the full population, not your population. See, so there's that. Second of all. Shall we explain? I, I, I'm like, should I explain exponential growth of a <sighs> steep curve variant versus a linear 
administration of 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 a vaccine mm. like the slope people the slope mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> algebra breaks sense now as does calculus apparently but man i never like when i was learning about parabolas man i never would have thought that uh, never <laughs> thought. i try i try to remind people that bending the curve is like is actually you know reducing the second derivative and they're like oh oh i never thought of it that way i'm like it's literally calculus like it is as somebody who didn't take calculus i don't know what that means okay (laughs) fine okay you math people know what i'm talking about listen economics (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean the point (laughs) is is that you're never gonna win that fight yeah okay and so if that's their strategy, oh my gosh, we are so screwed. All right, oh. Erica. I think uh, I think we're done here. So um Well, I would like to say that y'all need to share more. Mm. Share the podcast more. That's what I'm asking you to do. Like literally hit the share button. Mm. Post it. Mm. Tell your friends about it. Mm expand the listener network Mm, that's what i'm asking Mm -hmm. okay yeah Yeah. anyway we'll we'll be back next week i guess (laughs) yes bye Bye.